0: Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. Well, I'm very honored and excited to have the opportunity to continue on with you all in our Mark series this morning. And today we're going to be going right into Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So you can go ahead and turn there uh, with me if you brought your Bibles here with you today. Well, before we jump into the section of Mark, I just want to ask you guys this question, and I want to give you a few seconds to kind of think about it quietly to yourself, okay? You guys got it? So here's the question. What is man's greatest need? What is man's greatest need? So go ahead and think about that for a second. Okay, you guys got your answer now in your head, you think? (laughs) So let me ask you this question, Uh, what is your greatest need? What is your greatest need as a human? Now for some of you, that question might have made you change your answer. For others of you, the answer was the same for both questions. Some of you might have answered these two questions with the answer of man's greatest need or my greatest need is to have world peace or to to never be without food, or family, or friendship, or wealth, or physical health. And so you might be wondering why I've asked that question. Well, in order for me to give you the answer, you're going to have to wait and see. (laughs) The title of my message this morning is Man's Greatest Need and God's Greatest Gift. My prayer for each of us here today is that God would show us through his inerrant an infallible word with clarity, just what those two things are. And so would you please pray with me as we get started? Father, this is your word that we are going to read, and your word is alive, your word is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces the heart, it pierces the soul, and it speaks to us, it changes us. And so as we go to look at your word and we look at the story of your son, we ask that you would speak to us, that it would change our lives because we believe you can do that here today. Father, I ask that you would use me, that you would guide my words, that it would be an encouragement to the people here. We love you and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys have been following along with us in our Mark series, you might remember where we left off from last week. We saw Jesus traveling into Capernaum with his disciples, entering the synagogues there on the Sabbath day, teaching and healing many in the town who were sick with all sorts of diseases, casting out demons there with an authority like the people had never seen or heard before. Of course, after seeing such amazing signs and miracles happen, word quickly spread around town and it wasn't long before Jesus was being overwhelmed with the amount of people that wanted to see him to be healed or just out of plain curiosity to witness these miraculous moments. Well, after getting away from the crowds and the bombardment of people to go pray quietly alone before dawn, Jesus is found by his disciples and told that everyone is looking for you. And so he tells his disciples in verse 38 of chapter one, he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too, for this is why I have come. And as we will see in the rest of this narrative, that's exactly what Jesus continues to do. Jesus leaves Capernaum and he travels to the neighboring areas throughout all of Galilee. And what was it that he was doing? Well, he was preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And this is where we meet the man with leprosy, begging Jesus for mercy and healing. And so in verse 41 of chapter one, we see a beautiful glimpse into the heart of Jesus when it says, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. And so with this miracle, the man, even though Jesus told him not to, spreads the word about what Jesus had done for him all over the region. And this leads to even greater crowds seeking to find Jesus so that he can no longer even enter into a town without becoming overwhelmed. Even though Jesus withdraws to remote desolate regions, people still found him. And so again, Jesus leaves and he heads back to Capernaum. And this is where our text picks up this morning. And so as we jump right into chapter two, I just want to encourage you to do your best to imagine and depict the exact scene of events that are unfolding here in this narrative. It's very easy for us to read these 12 verses and miss just how much is happening in this text. And so if you're ready, let's go ahead and jump right in chapter two, starting in verse one. Here we go. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And so many people were gathered together, that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. Okay, so try and picture exactly what is happening here in this story. Jesus returned from the neighboring towns to the house where he was staying in Capernaum. And now we don't know if this was the home of Simon, Peter, and Andrew, but we probably can assume that it was because in chapter one, verse 29, we see that that's where Jesus went with the four of the disciples after he finished preaching in the synagogue. And so maybe that's where Jesus came back to after his journey from the neighboring areas. Regardless of whose house it was though, the setting helps us to understand the heart of Jesus a little better. And I'm gonna show you why in just a minute. Imagine after such a long journey, I imagine that Jesus was hoping to find some rest at home where he was staying. Traveling several miles in the heat and dust wears down on you physically. And I'd I'd say it's safe to assume that Jesus was coming here for rest. And it's not long before his time of rest is interrupted in the freedom of Jewish custom. Yet again, another large crowd comes. And this crowd is so large that the text tells us there's no more room, not even in the doorway. And verse two shares with us an important detail that we cannot miss. Once these crowds gather inside the home where Jesus was staying, what was Jesus doing? That's right. Look at verse two. It says, Jesus was speaking the word to them. Some of your translations might say, Jesus was preaching the word to them. And this again reiterates the heart and compassion of Jesus as he lives out what he said was his main focus while on earth, Remember what he said in chapter 1 verse 38. He said, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too, for this is why I have come. And so don't miss this. Jesus's main purpose for being here wasn't to perform miracles or to heal diseases. His main purpose was to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the good news. And that's what he's focused on doing In the previous chapter, we see that Jesus is going to the synagogues and he's preaching there and teaching in a way with authority that the people have never seen before. But this is the first time we see even in the house where Jesus is staying, he's still focused on his mission. When people gather around him, he preaches the word to them. And now we have to recognize that many people traveled to the house he was staying at and gathered around him for the sole purpose of getting a cure or just out of curiosity to see a miracle for themselves. But when he had this crowd gathered around him, he preached the word to them. He could have told the crowd to leave me alone until he was well rested, but instead he compassionately engages with their hearts, feeding them with the word. Let's continue on with verse 3 together. It says this They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. So we see next that while Jesus is preaching the word to this crowd of people that's gathered around him in his home, these four men show up carrying a paralytic. And now the text doesn't give us the details of who these men are or who this paralytic is, but these four men could have been this paralytic's family. Maybe they were his friends. All we know is that these four men carried this man who was unable to bring himself to Jesus. And we also aren't given the detail of how this man became paralyzed. What we do know is that these five believe that if they got to Jesus, it would change everything for them. Think of the humility it took for the paralytic to be carried by these four men in front of just such a large crowd of people. Think of the compassion and the kindness these four men showed the paralytic to carry him. And what happens next? Let's look in verse 4 together. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. So, there's a lot in this section that I think we need to focus on. Think about exactly what is happening here. So, while Jesus is preaching the word to this large crowd gathered in his house, these four men see an obstacle in front of them. And the crowd is so great and so large that they cannot do what they came to do, and that is to get to Jesus with their paralytic friend. And we don't get the details of the conversation that happened among these men. But I imagine that they quickly were trying to figure out and think of solutions on how they could get their friend to Jesus. The next thing they do shows us that they were willing to do whatever it took to make this happen. Because the next thing they do should surprise all of us, as I'm sure it did the current people in this story. So what is it that they do? Well, of course, what any normal person would do they decide to rip apart the roof of the house and lower their friend down directly to Jesus. Now, it was a common thing for houses in Palestine at this time to have a roof access where they would, there would be a set of stairs on the outside of the home leading up to the top of the roof, and the roofs were made of wooden cross beams covered with thatch and a layer of compact dirt, and several many different, it was used for several many different purposes. And so the fact that these men decided to dig through the roof that Jesus, to reach Jesus shows us just how large and confined was the crowd that was gathered around them and how they felt like there was no other reasonable way to reach him. We don't get the detail of how much time passed or how long it took for these men to tear apart the roof of this house. But you have to imagine that while Jesus is preaching, it started to become obvious that something bizarre was going on. I can imagine as someone inside of the house that you just first start to see pieces of dirt falling down, and you hear some strange noises, constant scraping and chipping sounds coming from the ceiling, and maybe you hear a quiet conversation happening on the roof, and I'm sure eventually your curiosity just started to go off in your mind. But regardless of how long it took them, I think what is important for us to recognize is that these four men were will, willing to rip apart the roof of a house that was not theirs, mind you, in order to hopefully somehow be able to get this paralytic man to Jesus. So at some point, I'm sure that eventually Jesus had to just stop teaching because the noise and distraction from the dirt and dust floating around in the room um, was, was just uh, taken away from everything that he was saying. But now picture this the light piercing through when they finally break open the roof and a large hole starts to form. I'm sure no one expected what happened next. There through the hole, a paralytic is carefully lowered down to Jesus. And what is Jesus's reaction? Let's look at verse 5 together. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I had to pause for a second and say, hmm, that is not what I expected Jesus to say. And I imagine neither did the paralytic man or anyone else in the room. I expected Jesus to say, you are healed. There's something very significant about what Jesus says here. First, it says in verse 5, seeing their faith. Their faith includes those four men carrying the paralytic But I believe it's also referring to the paralytic himself. And how was their faith demonstrated? Well, their faith was demonstrated in their paramount act of desperation to get to Jesus and the total breaking of social norms, i.e. ripping apart the roof of a stranger's house in order to do it. And this wasn't blind faith. This was radical faith that was so confident in the person and nature of Jesus that these five were willing to do whatever it took to get to him. And so if we zoom in even more, what we see from the faith of the paralytic man is that his faith wasn't just belief that Jesus could heal him. His faith was a true saving faith, a type of faith that could only come with repentance and belief in the good news message that Jesus was preaching in the very room. And we can't miss what Mark is saying here about Jesus. He says, "In seeing their faith." Mark isn't referring to just their outward demonstration of faith, while that was apparent, but what Mark is saying here is that Jesus could see the true saving faith within the paralytic man's heart, something only God has the power to do. Jeremiah 17.10 tells us, "'I, the Lord, examine the mind, I test the heart, to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve.'" And so how do we know that Jesus could see this man's heart? Because Jesus' response to him is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Two very important things are revealed to us in this statement about the deity of Jesus. Because only God can know the heart of man, and only God has the authority to forgive sins. Now this phrase that Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven, reveals to us more the heart and the mission and the message of Jesus And it is what I want to focus on for the next little bit. While there were many gathered around Jesus searching most likely for a temporary form of relief, like a relief from a physical ailment, all the while most of them did not recognize that they all had an even greater need spiritually. Their greatest need is the same greatest need that you and I have today. They all equally needed forgiveness of their sins. And this is the message that Jesus came to preach, that forgiveness of sins was not only needed, but made possible through him. You see, of all the miracles that Jesus did, including that of raising Lazarus from the dead, they were all just temporary. And what I mean by that is that even though Lazarus was raised from the dead, he still died again one day. And the man with the withered hands One day that hand became withered again with old age, and you can go on and on of every story of miraculous healing that Jesus performed, and then you start to realize that apart from the forgiveness of sins in eternity, what did any of these miracles matter for any of these people? What a great pity if they never saw their greatest need to be forgiven of their sins, And they walked away after a face-to-face encounter with the one person who could offer it to them. So what if you were lame and made to walk again, or deaf and made to hear again, or blind and made to see again, or paralyzed and made to move again? If you still have the wrath of God looming over you, if you have no hope of escaping eternity in hell, then you have a much more pressing and greater need than any relief from a temporary physical ailment. Forgiveness of sins is man's greatest need. It was the greatest need of the people then in that house, and it's the greatest need of the people here today. Just like the paralyzed man, we ourselves can do nothing to rid ourselves of our greatest ailment, our sin. That apart from true repentance and belief in the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, there is no forgiveness of sins. Like the paralytic, we are unable to save ourselves. And the Bible reminds us that no one does good, that there's no one righteous, that all our good works are filthy rags. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages or the payment of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And here's the good news. As Pastor Chad reminded us last week, Jesus tells us in Mark 10.45 that he came to be the payment, the ransom for our sins. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom or a payment for many. As a church, before we move on, I must ask you this question. Have you seen your very real and serious need for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you looked to Christ, repented and turned from your sins, and believed in him as the true and only ransom and savior for your sins? If not... Why have you not done so? Do not delay, but repent and believe the gospel. Christ lovingly welcomes all who will come to him, acknowledging their need to be healed from their disease of sin. As we continue on looking at verse five, there's two key pieces to this story that we need to see in the way that Jesus responds. First, I want us all to see the way that Jesus addresses this man. Because it depicts to us his very heart. So let's look at what Jesus said again in verse 5. Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Did you guys catch it? Do you notice how Jesus addresses the paralytic man? What does he call him? Son. And what is so significant about this statement is really evident in the original language. And so bear with me because I believe this helps us to see the heart of Jesus a little more clearly. In Greek, there are two different words we use that we translate into English sometimes as son. One of the more common words is "huios," and the other word is technon. "Huios" is used as a more descriptive statement of possession, referring specifically to a male offspring, like I am the quios of Mark Godley. That's my dad's name. But Mark doesn't use the word quios here. He uses the less commonly used word, technon. And here is why that is so significant. The address of technon is a more relational, endearing, intimate, familiar way of addressing someone. It's the way a teacher might address a disciple that he loves. And so we cannot miss the significance of this here. Jesus is showing us much of who he is in this address. His compassion and grace is demonstrated in the way that he speaks to the paralytic man. The heart of Christ is a heart of compassion that loves to offer forgiveness of sins. Not in a reluctant way, but in a compassionate and loving way. Jesus, like he did with the paralytic, looks on us he sees our helplessness, our state of utter dependence on him, and through his work on the cross for our behalf, he offers to us with full compassion the forgiveness of sins. The second significant s- statement made in this response, and that was most certainly even more jarring for the audience there, was when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. So let's continue on with verse 6 through 7, and we will see why. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so let's just look at why this was so significant. The scribes are correct here in saying, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes know that in the law, in Leviticus 24, verse 16, that blaspheming the name of God is a grievous sin worthy of the death penalty. You don't have to flip over that section, but let me just briefly read that verse for you. It says this, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The whole community is to stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death, whether the resident, alien, or the native. So blaspheming the name of God meant that you would be stoned to death. And this is exactly the reason the Jews try and kill Jesus in John 10:33. They said, "We aren't stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God." And so this is where the story gets even more interesting. Because in the previous chapter, we saw Jesus coming and bringing the kingdom in secret. But now, Jesus has just made a claim of divinity in front of the religious leaders and a massive crowd of people that is worthy of him being stoned to death on the spot. The scribes were right in asking, who can forgive sins but God alone? And this question is significant. They are correct in saying that God can for- only can forgive sins. And why is that? Because all our sin that we commit, even against one another, is ultimately sin against God. You guys remember what David wrote in Psalm 51 after his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah had been exposed? He wrote in verse 4, Against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Our sin against a holy and just God requires that it does not go unnoticed or unpunished. And we join David in saying that you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. And so we ask the question, the scribes it again, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the answer to that question is no one. And why the statement is so shocking is that Jesus is saying here that he has the authority to forgive sins which in turn means he's implying he is God incarnate. And so again, we must see God's grace and mercy in Jesus here. Because God being omniscient, knowing every sin we have ever committed, knowing every countless evil thought or action that we've done in secret, is willing to step into our darkness and offer us full forgiveness. Jesus, being perfect, has taken upon himself the payment and punishment due our sins so that he can turn and say to those who believe in him, your sins are forgiven you. What selfless love and humility is displayed in Christ's forgiveness. And so now we're going to see that Jesus proves to the crowd and all the religious leaders that what he is claiming is true that he does indeed have the authority to forgive sins. First, he demonstrates his authority by knowing what the scribes were thinking. Look at verse eight with me. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things in your heart? This in itself had to catch the scribes completely off guard. I'm sure they wondered how did he know what we were thinking? But Jesus doesn't just stop there and show them that he has the authority to even know the very heart and mind of the scribes. But he then goes to show them that he has the authority, authority to do what he has claimed to have done to forgive this man's sins. Look at what he says in verses 9 through 11. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now what I want you to see is exactly what Jesus is doing here. Why he does say in verse nine, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat. Why does he say that? Well, here it is anyone can say your sins are forgiven, but there's no tangible evidence that what is being claimed has actually happened. So for Jesus to claim this man's sins are forgiven, the scribes had every right to be skeptical and to be offended and to question his authority and therefore stone him to death for his blasphemy against God, for claiming he could do something that only God has the authority and power to do. But now Jesus goes to show them that he does indeed have the authority to forgive sins because he's going to demonstrate this authority in a very tangible way by healing this man of his paralysis. And here's the key to how Jesus demonstrates his authority. He puts everything on the line. If he fails to heal this man, it demonstrates that his claim to forgive sins was false and the scribes can rid this false prophet from their presence. But if he can do the impossible task of physically healing this paralyzed man, then the scribes must admit that his claim to have the authority to to forgive sins is true. And thus, Jesus tells them in verse 10, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And so here we have our first reference to Daniel chapter 7 in the gospel of Mark. You guys remember the message that Pastor Chad gave to us at the beginning of our Mark series? If you haven't heard that message yet, you can go on our website and find it there. I encourage you guys to go listen to it. But I want to just briefly turn back there to Daniel 7 verse 14 and read what was prophesied about the Son of Man who was to come. Verse 14 it says he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people nation and language should serve him His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed And so while it may be obscure to his audience this is what Jesus is saying in the statement I am the son of man prophesied in Daniel 7 I have been given dominion and glory and a kingdom over all people of the earth, over every nation and every language. I have the authority and the power to forgive sins. And so that you will know I have this authority, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And so let's look at verse 12 together as we finish this section of Mark. Immediately he got up took them at, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I just want to pause briefly. This isn't in my notes, but I think it's key to just see the word immediately there. If you've studied the gospel of Mark before, you'll see that Mark likes to use that word a lot. What I think is significant here in him saying, immediately the man got up, is symbolism for exactly what happens when our sins are forgiven. It's not we come to Christ and then we hope that over time our forgiveness will be there. That when Jesus says your sins are forgiven you, it is immediate. And that when he healed this paralytic man, it is immediate. His sins were forgiven. His sins were cast away from him. And so just to encourage you to know that when you come to Jesus, it is once and for all, it's immediate. He does away with your sin. Let me get back in my notes here. So we get a, a greater glimpse into what the kingdom of God coming to earth will look like. The messianic secret that we heard about in chapter one has now been blown wide open in chapter two because now Jesus has claimed publicly before all of these people that he is God, that he has the authority to forgive sins. And so he proves it by doing this miraculous act of physically and spiritually healing this paralyzed man. It says, immediately this man gets up, he takes his mat, he walks out in front of everyone, and this astonishes the crowd. And I believe the reason that they are astonished is multifaceted. I believe they were astonished because one, Jesus just claimed something no one ever has claimed before or would dare claim. Jesus claimed that he could forgive sins. But two, he proves that this claim was true by doing another miraculous thing. By healing this man of his paralysis. And so we see that the crowd's reaction is that of pure astonishment. They had never seen or heard anything like this before. The way the crowd reacts to Jesus' great display of compassion and authority is the same way that I hope we would react and respond today. How did they respond? What well, says in verse 12 they gave glory to God. And so in closing, I just want to ask you all this question, is this the same response that you and I have today after encountering Jesus and the precious gift of full forgiveness of our sins that he's offered us? Jesus has demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. We've seen through this passage that he is compassionate, And even though he can see the heart of men, my wicked heart, yet he still extends a hand of grace to me and invites me to receive full forgiveness from all my sins, past, present, and future. This is the greatest gift that anyone could ever be offered. The only one with the authority to justly and eternally condemn us also has the authority to permanently cleanse us and make us whole. And so he offers to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west for those who would repent and turn away and believe in him. So my prayer for you this morning as we close would be that you could see how miraculous of a gift it is that Jesus offers to us full forgiveness of sins. For those of you who have experienced this forgiveness, my prayer is that Christ would grow your love for him through this passage, that you would see Jesus in a greater light, and that as we go to respond in worship, that you could raise your hands and give glory and praise to God for the great things he has done in your life. But for the rest of you gathered outside with us or watching online who have been skeptical to the claims that Jesus made have rejected him or denied the invitation to have your sins forgiven, my prayer is that you would see him for who he is and that you would respond to his invitation to repent and believe the good news. That through salvation, you would experience the full healing of having all of your sins forgiven as you are welcomed into the eternal kingdom of God. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for stepping down into this broken world full of darkness and sin by sending us your perfect Son, Jesus. He did not have to come, but he willingly came to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, we thank you for this story that we have from your word to see the heart of Jesus more clearly. Because your word tells us, seeing the son, we've seen the father. And so we know that the heart of Jesus is the same heart as you. That you are a God of mercy, of compassion, of grace, full of forgiveness. Now, while we deserved eternal separation from you, you still decided to step in undeservedly to make a way for us to be made clean. To have the blood of your son, Jesus washed over us, for him to take our sins away from us, to remove them, and that we could be called holy because he is holy. Lord, we ask that your word would stick with us this week, that when we mess up, when we sin, we would remember that for those of us who have believed, it's already been paid for, it's already been forgiven. And Lord, I pray for those who have never come to have their hearts softened to receive the gospel, that you would do that today. There is a great uh, harvest to be had here in the Bay Area. And we pray that you would show us a glimpse of that today, whether it's in someone's life, watching online or in person, that you would save. You are still a God who is saving Your gospel is still alive and moving and changing people's hearts, and so we ask for the grace today that we would see you do that here. Lord, we give this time to you. We exalt your son's name because he is worthy of it, and so as we go to sing together, um, may you grow our love for you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.